Hi, I'm Elise. I'm Matt, and welcome to Pod Wraiths, a Star Trek Deep Space Nine podcast. If this is your first time joining us, we're two friends watching Star Trek Deep Space Nine and sharing both our deep and irreverent thoughts on our favorite Star Trek series. This week, we're talking about Season 3, Episode 10, Fascination, teleplay by Philip Lezebnik. I'm like hoping that's how you pronounce it, and directed by our favorite Avery Brooks. This episode aired on November 28th, 1994. This week on Deep Space Nine, Ambassador Luxana Troy visits the station to attend the Bajoran Gratitude Festival, resulting in an outbreak of passion throughout the station as people emit their secret feelings for each other. This week we're joined again by friend of the pod Tessa of podcasts Monkey Off My Backlog and Nanny Ogg's Book Club. Welcome, Tessa. Hello. I'm excited to be here. I am. I have my pink wine. I've got my like president of the Loxana Troy fan club <laughs> membership ready to go. Yeah, this does is does it great come episode. with like a hat? I wish. You know, we should really invest in merch. <laughs> the holy rings of Beta Z. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I would buy some. Of so, that Tessa, merch. is is Luxana's appearance on Deep Space Nine why you wanted to to come back this episode? Oh, Can you tell us a bit more of why you picked it? Oh, absolutely. Like, <laughs> I think after last time, I was just like, I'm going to call dibs on every Luxana Troy episode, which I think there's only three in Deep Space Nine. So there wasn't one in season two. So I did something else. But as soon as you said people sign up for season three episodes, I knew that I wanted the one with Loxana. And I think I like vaguely remembered this episode. Like I, I remembered the twist at the end of the episode, but I didn't remember it like fully. So it was really cool going back, especially after thinking about the last episode we saw her in to kind of piece together this continuity of her life post TNG era so this was really cool to to watch and like before i just love her she's great she's amazing she's fabulous give majel barrett every single part yes i mean it might be kind of hard now <laughs> but, <Yeah>. you know. <laughs> uh, so what were your well, i guess we'll start then with you tessa as the the guest what were some of your like initial thoughts on the episode having sat down to rewatch it this is a very silly episode <laughs> Of, of television and of Star Trek. Uh, that's not to say it isn't a good one. It's just very, very silly. But I was, like, looking over the season three episodes so far and, like, all of the things that season three introduced to the show that would become really important to some of the serialized plot lines later. And some of them are really dark. So I'm wondering if when they wrote this episode, if they were seeing it as something to break the tension, because they had been talking about all of these like really dark ideas and like the Jem Hadar and like Odo's identity crisis and like all of these things. And it just kind of feels like they needed to take a, a break and just do something like fun on the station. And so what better way to do that than to invite our favorite Loxana Troy, who always knows how to have a good time. Yeah, you're, that's that's exactly it. And then doing kind of some of the, the preliminary environmental scanning and like research for this episode, looking at Memory Alpha and the DS9 Companion, um, that was very much their intent. Um, especially not only with the particularly heavy episodes that 
well, for Star Trek anyways, um, that we'd had previous to this episode, but there are some some pretty heavier ones that um, people familiar with the series might might be looking forward to or anticipating or maybe even dreading um, coming down the, the pipeline shortly. So they did want to take that moment to have a breath. In a lot of ways, this feels a bit like an original series episode to me, much like Move Along Home in season one. But as a staunch Move Along Home defender, I do want to just say that Fascination definitely doesn't work for me as well. And what I think is kind of interesting, too, is that this the idea of this episode and kind of this sort of classic comedy or, or farce and that we can kind of get into a bit more later in our discussion um, was originally an idea that they had during kind of when they were breaking stories for season two and then it it stuck around and they thought that this would be a good a good place to to set it and yeah like i get the idea of placing it here as kind of that breather but in some ways it does feel more like some of those season two episodes like rivals that didn't really work for me more than what we've kind of been experiencing so far on on this season elise it wouldn't be an episode of pod if i didn't ask you our our usual question it's, it's it's our unofficial segment much like our, our closing segments on the podcast but did you remember this episode as tessa and sam would say this is a podcast within a podcast um <laughs> i did not specifically remember this episode um but i for the most part really enjoyed it uh, as tessa said it it was pretty lighthearted. i mean you use the word silly but um i agree it was silly but it was it was lighthearted. I like that we got to see everyone out of their usual costuming. Um, everyone was kind of in, yeah, they were like wearing casual clothes or dress up clothes, which was really nice. Um, I also like that the entire cast was in this episode that we haven't really had that in a while. Um, I specifically want to shout out that I thought Terry Farrell was, did a really good job with the comedy in, in this episode. There was that one scene where she's like wagging her finger and it just like me while like she's like hiding behind Cisco and it just made me laugh a lot and she just like has this smile on her face the whole time which I love um and I was really happy that we got a little bit of mourn lore um Dax called him a fun loving dude and I was like I want to see like more about mourn I want like, to I know love, what all like, his problems were that he wrote on the, on the scroll. Like, I'm invested. I know. I'm like, are they, like, friend problems? Are they lady problems? Are they men problems? Like, what's going on here? Matt, what did you think? The si- well, I guess you said that it didn't really work for you. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, like, I think there were, like, parts of it that I liked. And I think there are interesting moments. It's just... I don't know. It's like, if to use like a sports metaphor, which I mean, maybe I shouldn't because I don't even really like sports, but like, it feels like it just barely got on base because, you know, it there were four balls or something like that. Is that a baseball thing? Is that a baseball metaphor? <laughs> like it, like it's, it's not yes. offensive, but like, I don't know. It just like, parts of it feel kind of messy and it's like, it's not fun enough for me to care (laughs) (laughs) you know what I mean and like I did rewatch the episode as as I should do and and usually do before we record but I almost didn't for this episode because it's like you know yeah yeah I get it like you know what I mean but 
I did like some of the direction in this episode. Um, we've talked about before on Avery Brooks is directed previously. Like, I think he does some interesting things with the, the camera and like the one shot that stood out to me is it's, it's near the start of the episode where Kira is, is kicking off the, the gratitude festival and lighting the, the, ceremonial pyre that they all put their mm-hmm. their scrolls into and the camera kind of starts on the upper level of the promenade and then i don't know it almost like it looks like it was kind of like a tracking shot and then kind of like comes over and then views cure from above and then goes down and then it cuts to like a more kind of what we're used to like a standard kind of tv shot of cisco and like so like there was some interesting things going on on there at times um I did like the Keiko and Miles stuff. I just don't know if it super fit with some of the other stuff that was going on in this episode. But that's we can, can that's, get into fe- that that's fair. I could see how I could see how it would feel like disjointed, like they were from two different episodes, and they did because those plots really didn't intersect much. Um, I was just gonna say about oh, go ahead. Oh, I just wanted to comment on the camera thing real quick. Uh, it reminds me of which episode was it where they did the like elevator. Where, like, they were upstairs in the elevator, and then... Yeah. Was that the other Avery Brooks episode? It was, and I can't... You know what? Was it Meridian? Was that the one you were talking about? Because it's, like, the court, I think. Let me look it up, because it's going to bug me. Sorry, I just wanted to, like, remember this before we went on to the Keiko. You you caught me, because I couldn't remember it, and so that's why I, like couldn't remember the name of it oh i'm sorry so that's why i was like jumping that's why i like phrased it the way that i phrased it apologies Um, no it's fine meridian Um, is a jonathan freaks directed episode yeah no it's the it was the abandoned i think oh was that that which was the one with the gem head yeah yeah well i was just gonna say i think it's interesting matt that you bring up TOS because I was thinking the naked time while I was watching this episode. Yeah. Because there it does actually kind of feel like a similar beat. Like something happens that causes the crew to become attracted to each other in weird pairings that are supposed to be funny. Right? Like that's that's kind of the basic premise of this. <laughs> I thought this was DS9's yeah. the naked time also. Like I really I thought the same thing. Although the, I, I agree yeah. with you that the naked time I think is actually more successful than this. And like, I think it's almost like trying to do like a trouble with triples thing. And it's just, more, yeah, it just, it doesn't, I don't know. Not for me, not my tempo. That's all I right. I mean, like you they said, there's a lot of all. stuff going on. There's like the Miles and Keiko storyline. There's the like main storyline of everybody being affected by this thing that makes them attracted to each other. There's the stuff going on with Loxana. There's the stuff going on with Odo. Like, there's just, like, a lot of things happening. And none of them are particularly well-developed. Except for maybe the Keiko and O'Brien stuff. Yeah. I do think that the Shakespearean uh, comedy aspect, like, the stuff specifically involving Kira is used to further the Odo plot a little bit. But otherwise, I don't. It was all felt very disjointed. Yeah, and I mean, we do have, like, some Miles and Julian stuff, and we've talked about before as them as, like, a, like, regular pairing on the show and kind of their, their budding friendship that's been developing. And, like, I like I do think we see 
some of that starting in this episode is kind of a another foundational layer to that but what grinds my gears about that about that kind of functionally and i think is a a weakness of the show overall is that they create the miles and julian friendship which i do think is good at the expense of Keiko as a character because they really don't know what to do with her. So they write her off the show as much as possible, right? Like, she was she had nothing to do, so she became the teacher, and then the school closed, and then, you know, now they're doing, you know, these other things where it's like they can just get her away and have Miles throwing it up. And, like, I do think there were some really strong moments in that plot, especially them not being affected by betazoid menopause which i guess we can get into we can get into later which I'm i think we officially have to call it on. that from now on that's what it's called oh. now i don't even know what the real name is but it's betazoid menopause i don't menopause. remember i didn't write it down it's it's betazoid menopause I just felt- but there's that scene where she's back and they're like just kind of quiet and sitting there at quarks and have that kind of nice moment and then mm-hmm. it turns into like the disagreements and just like that felt like a very true to life like established relationship thing where you're going out but it's not like it's not a first date anymore it's not like a third date you're not like you know you're enjoying your time enough but you're kind of thinking about other things and it's like you're not it just it's a different vibe and i'm like this would have been interesting to explore in a way that didn't have Keiko leaving the show. Like, they didn't really, they kind of did Rosalind Chow dirty, in my opinion. I just felt really bad for her this whole episode because, I mean, last we saw her, she was going off to Bajor to do her botany stuff, taking the child Molly with her. So she's been parenting Molly alone for months. She comes back. And, like, I know Miles loves her and misses her, but, like, he should be letting her relax and he should be taking care of Molly while they're home. Well, I just... So I have a real problem with Miles's relationship with his wife and child is when it comes to childcare in this episode. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. I am right along with you on this one because, first of all, traveling with children is the worst like anyone will tell you that especially if you're solo parenting and like like you said Elise she's been doing this alone for months on a completely different planet and yep. the next thing we see after like that, that opening that cold open is O'Brien sitting on the couch drinking a scotch relax like just relaxing while Keiko who literally just said that she had the trip from hell is like taking care of their sick kid like get in there Miles you're a parent too like it very much felt like oh well Molly is most associated with Keiko because she's the mom and that's what moms do moms take care of their kids dads don't take care of their kids it felt very gendered and very like honestly like if I was Keiko, I kind of wouldn't want to be there either if he's not, like, pitching in at all with, like, the child yeah. care. It, it really bothered me the, at right after, immediately after she said that she had the trip from hell. He doesn't even, like, ask her about it. Like, he doesn't say, like, oh, I'm so sorry, what happened? Like, I, the first thing I would be doing would be, like, we can, you know, please tell me what happened unless that will make it worse. Like, but, like, ask the person, do you want to talk about it? Do you not want to talk about it? Like, he just, he had his agenda and that was all he was thinking about. Yeah, a lot of this comes across as, like, an example of the inequity in domestic labor that exists in a lot of heterosexual marriages. 
I mean, not just with the childcare, but this idea that Keiko has to be the mom and she has to have a career and she has to be like available for him emotionally and physically whenever he wants. And like, it just seems like the one thing that she says she can't do, which is to be available for him in this moment is like, it's like this thing that he can't wrap his mind around that like maybe these other things are taking up her energy and like her emotions. It's just that particular part just like pissed me off about the whole thing. Like I definitely was on the side of miles is unreasonable in this situation. (laughs) Yeah. In fact, I think the first thing I actually wrote on my notes was straight couples. Am I right? (laughs) (laughs) Which seemed to be, like, the theme of their relationship in this episode. Yeah. It it, it was very cliche, even from, like, a story writing perspective to me. Like, to have it where, I don't know, the woman is doing all the labor and the guy is just, you know, relaxing with his drink. Like, this isn't Mad Men. Like, come on. This was supposed to be the future. Your child just threw up on you. Like come on yeah and she's the one putting like it just oh it bothers me so much and like yeah in the next scene he's like is she okay all right put on the red dress honey like it just yeah that (laughs) yeah i i didn't like that although i do agree with you matt i i think i wrote in my notes too that i really don't like how she's written in these earlier seasons of deep space nine especially because I remember really liking her on The Next Generation. Like, she was an interesting character. She wasn't, like, a main character, but she still had stuff to do when she was in episodes. And here, like you said, they didn't really seem to know what to do, so it was like they were like, well, let me, let's me let just insert marital conflict, right? Like, that's what we should do. And she often comes across as being, like, for lack of a better word, the shrewish one who just, like, wants things that Miles doesn't want to give her. Although that might also have to do with the fact that we see Miles the most, so obviously we're going to sympathize with him more than we are with her. So I didn't actually think about the fact that they were writing her off the show for long periods of time. I just remember really disliking her character for these first few seasons. Yeah, and I, and I think it's them writing because like the cat, they're juggling. I think the cast even gets bigger with like kind of, you know, m- the more supporting characters. Like even Garrick, we've seen several times this season, um, and so like, I recognize that when you have as talented of a cast as as Deep Space Nine has, when you have, you know, like a Rom or a Garrick or a Ducat, like waiting in the wings trying to give something to that, like you know, with your your main cast of characters you're juggling a lot and I'm sympathetic to that. But like, I think you're exactly onto something. The only times we see Keiko is to present miles with some kind of challenge to overcome. And if they had done a better job, and I mean, if the writer's room had been more representative of society as you know, we hopefully see more in writer rooms now. And like, it's good that that's the case now, but it should have been in in the nineties as well. Maybe that inclination or that desire, that kind of lazy nagging wife trope wouldn't have manifested in the same way. And like, yeah, marriages, relationships, whatever, they do have conflict and that's a normal part of life, but also show us like some of the sweet with the bitter. And like, that's, kind of relationships writ large and how we navigate them and and the things like that and like how we grow both as individuals together 
both as individuals and as we grow together is kind of one of the most interesting challenges in like any kind of long-term or established relationship and like these are the things they could be exploring but they don't know how to juggle keikoas or how to use her aside from being the nagging wife so then they just scoot her off so they can work on the bromance which again i do like in a vacuum it's just at keiko's expense and i don't like that it also kind of feels like a maybe a reaction to like the lean in kind of feminism like i don't it wasn't called that in the 90s but the idea that like women should have it all right they should be the mom and they should be like the they should have a career and they should you know they should have everything and this feels like well the the sort of woman who does that she's not available right like she's not she's going to be someone that messes up your life <laughs> and so like that right. that kind of feels like maybe what they're unintentionally trying to to say here and i just find it really strange but i did like that they talked through the issue like i i almost wish that if they were going to do this they would have like dedicated a whole episode to it or dedicated like a couple of like an ongoing arc towards it because of them like actually working it out and compromising because also Bajor is Bajor that far away like I'm concerned about the fact yeah I'm concerned about the fact (laughs) that she's been gone for four months and he hasn't seen her but surely he's got like some leave occasionally like I don't even a long weekend like yeah I drive three. I drove three hours to see one of my friends like a few weekends ago. It's I know, like, and it do, it feels like maybe there's something between the I'm the, my career comes first on Deep Space Nine, and I'm going to resign and move to Bajor with you. Like, it feels like maybe so there's extreme. like some compromise there. But other than that, like, I did like seeing them at least try to show them working through the problem. Yeah, and he he apologized and yeah, that admitted that he was being an ass, which I appreciated. But, like, you don't need, and this is, I guess, where I'm just repeating Tessa's point back to both of you, but, like, it doesn't always need to be that kind of grand gesture to realizing that you're being a jerk. Right. Because it's, like, those grand gestures aren't sustainable, and it's, like, it's, like, that point, it's, like, that I think Julian makes when the school closes and... Miles is thinking of doing the Arboretum. Like, and this is again maybe just like, you know, very much stereotypical straight couples thing where it's like it's the big grandiose gesture, but really it's I think the day-to-day things that you can do that I don't want to call them small gestures because that minimizes it, but it's like the oh no, Molly is sick, I'll take care of her. You've been on this trip, it's okay. Like it's like an act of service. An act of service. Yeah, like it's more regularly intertwined in the fabric mm-hmm. of your relationship and not just, oh, shit, I fucked up. I better buy flowers right. or quit and, my job and move to Bayshore. Yeah. And and you know, if Miles, I mean, I guess Miles would find a different engineering job down on Bayshore, but like if he just quit and like left Starfleet or whatever, like he would be miserable. So like then no one would be happy because Keiko would be doing her job, but then also dealing with Miles being a probably a baby for being like so miserable that he's not working in Starfleet. So like that, I agree with you that just that gesture would not have been sustainable at all. Well, and I know that this is like a meme on Twitter, but like the idea that there's, there's often this joke, right? That straight couples don't like each other very much or like that, like 
especially straight women will make a joke about how they can't stand their husbands and they're like kind of joking but also kind of serious and like it's really disturbing like when that happens I feel like there's just a lot of non-communication in this relationship like both of them clearly want different things out of life but they're not communicating in any sort of way beyond like belligerence with each other I mean she's talking more with her friend on Bajor about their relationship than she's talking to Miles which although I think Miles was a jerk for being mad that she has male friends like she shouldn't be talking about her relationship in that much detail with another person right she should be talking to the person she's married to about their relationship so you know like it just feels like neither one of them are very good at communicating and neither one of them want to work on that communication. They just both want to have what they want to have. I feel like, I almost feel like that's the like underlying basis of that whole meme joke. Like the fact is, is that the people that act that way towards each other are just really shitty communicators. Yeah. I just... Like you do know that you're supposed to like like the person you're with right <laughs> like <laughs> like that's what I always think when people like joke about like oh I, like I was in a, a a training session the other day and somebody like was introducing themselves and she was like you know this older woman and she was like oh like you know I I wish I just bought my husband a boat so he'll like stay away from me most of the day and I'm like why are you living your life like that like come on I mean like, if you're if you I, don't I mean, want I him guess... around then maybe you should have like <laughs> some reconsiderations of your life choices i mean it worked for charlotte lucas and mr collins (laughs) 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 sorry 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 i I am like contractually obligated to make fun of straight relationships at least once a podcast like so yeah i'm similarly contractually obligated to mention like pride and prejudice (laughs) two for one two for one in this situation (laughs) No, but I, I think the communication point is is spot on, right? And like, however, two individuals want to define their boundaries within in a relationship, and you know, come to the conclusion of how they move forward to live their most authentic and fulfilled lives individually, together, not together, et cetera, et cetera. It begins and ends with with that kind of honest sharing and like yeah maybe you can have a like they could the the O'Briens could have like a living apart together relationship but like in order for them both to set themselves up for success with that they need to talk about it and it's like they're not talking about it right and that's that's the issue and they're not talking about their child at all in any of these conversations like is Molly just going to be keiko's responsibility when she lives apart does she get to see her dad ever during these situations like should she be living with her dad for part of this so keiko can have a break from parenting like sometimes there's a lot of of assumptions in this marriage is all i'm trying to say (laughs) sometimes i feel like maybe and maybe that's sorry elise go ahead Oh, I was just going to say, sometimes I feel like they write Molly like she's, like, a handbag. Like, she's just, like, an accessory to, oh, like... Oh, yeah, I definitely them. feel like that's what... Especially in the scene where Miles is talking to her and he's like, okay, go to your bedroom so I can make Mommy happy. It, it just feels like... And she's yeah. like, okay. And first of all, I've never seen a child <laughs> react to being told to go to their bedroom that way. Second of all, like, <laughs> I... 
I, it just, yeah, it feels like it's a plot point. Like, oh, it's so cute. They have a child together, and that child will disappear and not impact the storyline at all unless we want her to. Yep. <laughs> Matt, what were you saying? Yeah, I just, I mean, this isn't my candidate for, for most Star Trek thing in the episode, but uh, maybe it could be where Star Trek takes any children that are, like, younger than, like, a teenager and then just shovels them off and treats them, like you say, like a handbag or does weird things with them. I'm thinking of an Alexander in, in Next Generation where, you know, he's he's introduced, his mom dies, right. his father gets to, you know, single parent for a while, and then eventually his father shifts him, ships him back to Earth to go be raised by his grandparents. <laughs> Right. It's just he like, does get that mud bath. We don't bath. want to have a kid on the show anymore. <laughs> he does What's get that? that mud bath with Luxana that one time. <laughs> oh, there we go. There's our There's link. Our There's our link. <laughs> yes. So we also have a bit of a Shakespearean comedy on our hands here. <sighs> I had no idea about this until you told me about it before the podcast. I feel a little dumb uh, for not realizing it during the episode, though. Like, I'm looking at it now, and I'm just like, of course it's Midsummer Night's Dream. <laughs> yeah. I was reading yeah. I was reading on Memory Alpha that they actually had all the writing and production crew, like, watch the 1935 version of this movie with James Cagney, which we also, d- I did not know was a thing. Um, it's really funny. But I this have is to watch that. This is the second time... In a course of a week, I don't know when this episode comes out, but this is the second time in the course of a week that James Cagney has come up on a podcast that I've been on because we did, <laughs> for Monkey, we did our childhood favorites episode, which just came out this past Monday. And apparently, before Errol Flynn was cast in The Adventures of Robin Hood, James Cagney was considered for the role. Really? And I'm just trying to imagine The Adventures of Robin Hood as like a straight up gangster story. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm intrigued by this A Midsummer's Night's Dream. Yeah, I'm going to have to watch that. I'm also laughing because James Cagney is the star of my favorite childhood movie. <laughs> Who does James Hagney play in A Midsummer's Night Dream, at least? Um, I f- did not He's bottom. remember. I looked it up as soon as you told uh, me. Okay. I don't know the character that's... names that well, because I've only seen, like, one iteration. That's the guy who turns into, um, has the donkey head and Titania falls in love with. Oh, yeah. We're, I'm definitely watching this yeah. movie. So, Olivia de Hamlet, the, the head of the group of act- actors. Olivia de Havilland plays Hermia, and Mickey Rooney plays Puck. This is, like, such a wild thing. Speaking of which, is Loxana an unintentional puck, then? If we're going to map this over the... I don't know the play well enough to answer that. Because I think it's puck that... She's puck over and and to (laughs) ten. She she can play all three roles. It's fine. Three for one, baby. (laughs) (laughs) So, we have these unusual pairings. Um... And I really Which is very Midsummer's Night Dream. Yes. That's, that's the whole Yeah. The and whole I conceit. I was gonna go through them so we can uh, discuss them. And this first one I literally hated. Um it was Jake going after Kira. I kinda just wish that they kept Jake out of the storyline and like picked somebody else. I don't know who, but like, mostly because he's sixteen and it's weird. And it makes me uncomfortable. And I, I know this is 
Deep Space Nine and it's not like, you know, they're not showing us anything graphic. And they do kind of like show it as like a schoolboy crush, but just like as someone who is, I just, Jake can be my kid, so it just was like, I didn't like it. Yeah, I didn't really like this either. It felt really awkward. I think they were trying to wrap up the whole like what who was his other relationship Marta? i've already forgotten her name Mar- Marta. 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 i think they were trying to like wrap that up but also like put him as part of this plot although i did write that at the beginning of the episode when cisco is talking with jake about his breakup with marta that what he says to Jake is absolutely the last thing you want to hear when you're 16 and you just broke up with someone. He's like, yeah. you're 16, I promise you'll survive. Like, if I had been 16 years old, that would have resulted <laughs> in me, like, not talking to my parents for a week. <laughs> like, like yeah, it would have been very much like you don't understand what's happening. Because when you're 16 years old... <laughs> my world is over. Yeah, when you're 16 years old, like, yeah, that's probably true. Like, you will survive this. And it's fine if you're a parent and you chuckle about it but like you don't feel like you're gonna survive it when you're 16 yeah I kind of feel like the I it reminds me of I know he was a lot younger but the like Liam Neeson and Stepkid storyline in um Love Actually like how he like he it's like that was a little probably too much going uh encouragement but like there's somewhere in the middle where you can comfort and encourage your child but not like be like the world's good. the world will be fine get over it right i mean you could listen to, to your child that's just a random yeah. thought that i've had like maybe you could be like <laughs> how did that make you feel and then like spend some time talking to them about their feelings but you know what do i know i don't have a kid <laughs> i just remember what <laughs> well, it's like to be 16 it, that's all <laughs> yeah and even like yeah, this is like the rare like parenting misfire for for Ben Cisco in, in in my opinion. And even the whole idea is like, oh, you could find your next girlfriend tonight. No. It's like <laughs> no. th- there's just some weird like pickup artisty like <laughs> connotations down that road where I'm like, nee, no, thank you. It almost feels like Ben was telling Jake the only way to get over is to get under and (laughs) yeah I totally felt that (laughs) and that's just such a weird thing to say to a child I agree though like usually Ben is such a good dad and so it is really weird to see this like level of just ambivalence towards what his son is going through I don't know but I feel like parents do this though they're just like oh you're fine you're a child yeah but yeah no so we have Dax who went after Cisco. I found this one to be a little bit interesting because of their history. Um, like when you know someone that long, there's bound to have been feelings at some point. Um, and as I said earlier, I really enjoyed Terry Farrell's like acting in in this. Um, but what did you think, uh, Tessa? So I could be reading this into it. I did think it's funny, especially Terry Farrell's performance. Like you said, the scene where she has her hands over Ben and she's like shaking her finger. That was hilarious. Yeah. Like I Yeah. When he's protecting her yeah. from the yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's, that's oh, some God. good stuff. And like the way that when he takes her to the infirmary, which was funny, like when his immediate thought of Dax has a crush on me, she must be sick. That was hilarious. <laughs> and the way she's just like, Oh, I got him, it was a practical joke. Like that was all very funny. But I did feel like the initial thing that happens 
when she's confessing this these supposed feelings for him and he's just like not believing her about them that there is a little undercurrent of you were a dude and i can't date you in there like because he like calls specifically attention to the old man nickname in that moment where he's like oh you almost got me old man like you know and and it just it felt very much like you know oh we used to be bros like there couldn't like I couldn't possibly be attracted to you like that I don't know like maybe I'm just reading too much into it but that's just Curzon and Ben high-fiving down the hallway and saying no yeah yeah exactly like you know and so so like I just I think it was it was interesting because yeah I've always thought like it would be cool to explore some of those like maybe feelings and that history between Dax and and Cisco but it did feel like his first reaction was just like I don't know like I just felt like there was that undercurrent of like I knew you when you were a dude yeah I didn't read it that way but I read your notes before I watched it the second time and I definitely see how you could have like come to that conclusion and I saw it more the second time so I don't think you were reading into it too much I think there was a tinge of that in there although I did really enjoy when Bashir at the end of the episode when Bashir was like it's best not to think about it when talking about like the subconscious attraction that was very funny yeah I mean that was also because he was all hot and heavy with Kira like minutes before (laughs) that I did appreciate, oh, I'll get into that, but I did appreciate that um, that Cisco kept him from making a mistake he might have regretted later. <laughs> Cisco was really being everyone's dad in this episode. It, it was important. Except for Jake's. Except for Jake's, <laughs> his actual child. Yeah. So we had Beryl, who was after Dax. I like, I know that they were all under this influence, but this episode made me dislike Beryl even more. Um, his performance was the least believable of all of them to me. He was, he was, like, being creepy, and, like, Dax was, like, physically trying to get away from him, and it just, like, felt really icky to me. So, I'm curious, because I felt like a lot of people were really creepy in this episode about, like, their approach. Like, I was like, okay, if you want to date someone suddenly, like, none of these are appropriate ways of approaching someone. And... I almost wonder if, like, the Betazoid menopause, like, took away their inhibitions, and that's why they're all kind of acting like this. Because, like, I doubt Beryl was like this when he went after Kira. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, it, it, was, it was a lot slower. Right, it just seems, like, kind of odd. But that being said, I have to say that, first of all, when I started watching this episode and Odo was like, oh, Bryle's going to be here. I'm like, who? Who is this? I do not remember this person <laughs> at all. But he also, he, as someone who didn't remember this person at all, my first experience with him made me hate him because even before he's affected, he says some really shitty things about Dax to Kira, and it felt like very emotionally manipulative, like he was trying to isolate her from Dax or like you shouldn't be friends with yeah. her. Like, and I know they were playing that up because they wanted it to be funnier when he like is chasing her down the hallway, but like, come on, don't date somebody who says shit about your friends. Yeah, if you talk that way to me about my friend, like I will hurt you. Like you're not going to talk shit about my friends and date me. Like, that is not going to happen. We can, like, have a real conversation if they did something that bothered you, but we should also have that conversation, like, with the friend. But, like, 
you just, he almost, and this wasn't his words, but he almost was like, I felt like, was he calling Dax slutty? Like, I couldn't tell because he was like, oh, she's unpredictable or something. It was just very weird. I couldn't tell what the, like, read between the lines meaning of what he was saying was. It's the Spice Girls code. You can't go against the Spice Girls code. No, you really can't. (laughs) Did anyone get Neo vibes from Cisco when Beryl was trying to fight him for Dax? Oh, my God. It's just, like, the way that... Like, Cisco was moving his arms was very, like, how Neo would, like, when he realized that he can, like, not have to, like, move fast. If, you know, when he was just, like, blocking everything at the end of the, the first Matrix. I can definitely see that now that you bring up that that comparison. But I just took from it that Beryl is, like, not very good at punching because he punches Oh, wait, I mean, Cisco that, that the, too. He punches Cisco in the face and Cisco, like, barely <laughs> flinches. Like, he's more annoyed yeah. than anything else. But that scene, I, I was also... cackling over that scene because he's yeah. just, like, over it and he's, like, blocking these punches and then Dax comes in and just beats the shit out of Beryl. It also reminded me of the scene where Q was fighting with um, Cisco a little bit. In that, in Q-lists. Cisco is a much more action hero captain than Picard was, for sure. Yeah. I feel like Picard would, like, give you a speech. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, but he's also, Burr. like, very uncomfortable around any affection or, like, public yeah, displays true. of affection, which is part of the joke yeah. with Loxana. But... So I feel like he would have reacted to this situation with, like, extreme British embarrassment. And I know that that character is supposed to be French, but come on. It would have been extremely <laughs> yeah. British, whatever his reaction was. So we ha- so Kira was after Julian. Before- oh, before I get to that. Matt, did you have anything to add to that? No. Okay. So Kira was after Julian, which I still think this might be, like, before- Like, I can't- They probably- So I don't- <sighs> Let me back up. Uh, Nana Visitor divorced her husband the year that this came out, but she and Alexander Siddig did not get married for a few years, and I have no idea when they started dating. So to me, like, any scene with the two of them is like, I'm like, oh, are they dating yet? Are they dating yet? Which is, like, something very silly. Um, They were just making out (laughs) like teenagers. (laughs) I feel like... I think the teenager comparison is great because it was so awkward watching this. Like, Julian, <laughs> like, Julian is, like, closed mouth kissing Kira while Kira is trying to open mouth kiss him, like, on his cheek. Like, and they're, like, smashing their faces together. Yeah, it like, it's, very, like, the most like... awkward makeout session of all time. And I, I wonder if they were told to make it funny instead of sexy and that's like what they were going for but it just I'm came across sure as really were, cringy but... to me like i was like this is not hot at all like this is like the opposite what are you doing <laughs> even like this <laughs> the face smushing kisses of tos were hotter than this right just put the heads together <laughs> I mean, I feel like they mm. hit teeth together at some point during this oh, makeout totally. session. I mean, like, maybe they're into that. You maybe. I don't know. I don't know. I really hope this is not actually what their kissing was like when they were married. <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. But if it was, maybe they both liked bad kissing. Maybe. Never That's know. true. I mean, they're both pretty hot, so I'm going to imagine that they're good kissers. <laughs> 
I don't not know, that I do any sort of in real life people shipping. I we don't condone that on this <laughs> podcast. Matt, do you have any opinions about this this makeout session? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you found it very very alluring. I mean, if I did, I wouldn't admit it now on this podcast. <laughs> after those comments, <laughs> boo. <laughs> no, like. I just enjoyed, like, just the awkwardness of the hands. Yeah. I really, like, enjoyed that. And it's, like, anytime, like, you're kissing someone new, there is, like, that kind of awkwardness of, like, figuring out how you, like, kiss together, et cetera, et cetera. But, uh, yeah, no, I just, it was amusing and, uh, like, and it, like, one of the, like, more amusing parts of the episode for me, but, like, I don't know if that's purely on face, face value of the episode or with that meta element that Elise was talking about. I did really enjoy their entrance into Cisco's quarters to the party, how they just didn't stop making out as they, like, walked into the room <laughs> together. I mean, I don't understand. It's like a new walk and talk, yeah, like Aaron Sorkin, like, but kissing. <laughs> it makes a statement. I'll say that. Like... <laughs> You know what was also supposed to be amusing but wasn't? Quark being into Keiko. Not that I don't love Quark. We all know I love Quark. But, like, yeah. Was he <laughs> was... rubbing one out on her hair? Like That's what it seemed like to I me. I did not like, notice this it was the first his lobes. time. <laughs> yeah, he's, like, rubbing his ear against her hair. And she looks horrified. Yeah, I did not like this at all. I also feel like this was supposed to make a reaction, like get us get Miles to react so they could like mm. tie those two storylines together. This just felt right, like a really right, cheap right. way of trying to do that. Although I did like Quark wearing the Bajoran earring. I don't know why that was so fucking <laughs> See, funny. See, that was going to be my question. Like it, it is supposed to be funny, but like then he's, he's doing it like for the Gratitude Festival and he's, you know, basically decided that, you know, it's like... You know, Hanukkah is close to Christmas, so it becomes a bigger festival than it is because right. capitalism. But it's like, is it problematic that Quark, Quark is wearing a Bajoran earring as like a costume? Well, I, I had questions about that because it's like, is he doing cultural appropriation or are the Bajorans inviting? Because they seem like they're inviting a lot of outsiders to participate in these practices. Like a lot of the people on the station are not That's Bajoran and true. they're still having them do the scrolls and stuff. So... I mean, I can't say for sure that's what's happening, but it, it yeah. might be that a lot of people are being like invited into these practices. I chose to read it that way. Um, obviously, there's no way to to know, but I I chose to read it as like, okay, they're just like following the customs of this festival. I have to say, this festival seemed really fun. Like, I kind of wanted to be there, like with all the jugglers and the acrobats and the music which Odo enjoying the, the music was thing. so cute like that was I think the cutest thing I've ever seen Odo do just like swaying to the music and like getting into it <laughs> he wasn't dancing he was swaying he was swaying <laughs> so I just did anyone have anything else to say about the pairings or the Shakespearean comedy before we move on to Loxana Troy just that Armin Shimmerman hates this episode and it's because he is like, like he's taught Shakespeare. He's very much like a Shakespeare guy. And just it, he's like, this is 
terrible. This is bad. <laughs> I can't remember the exact quote, but like right. he just um, hated this oh, episode. I would feel horrible if I was um, forced to like play a character that was like sexually assaulting someone with their ears. So like, I mean, I would understand that from that perspective too. Yes. I will also say that before she's affected by the Betazoid menopause, Kira is really into the idea of having public sex with Beryl, which might be one of my favorite things that she's ever done. Like, she's just like, nobody will catch us here, but they're like right off the hallway. (laughs) I like that. Although I don't get it because I find him boring, but I love it for her. (laughs) Being real adventurous this episode. Yeah. I think she was just really embracing the festival. Like, I talk about this a little bit later in the notes, but just her whole, like, aura, even before they all got menopaused, they were, she was just so happy, and it was just really sweet. Menopaused as a verb is now, like, my favorite thing. You've been menopaused! <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> um, I love that Luxana comes to... Deep Space Nine, and is just hanging out with her bestie Odo the whole time. Her crush on him slash wanting to be his friend and be there for him. Like, she has a crush on him, but that's not their entire friendship, and that makes me really happy. Like, it's sweet, and she knows he doesn't feel the same way back, and it's okay, and they're just friends, and I love it. Um, I, in general, thought her having, like, that menopause headache thing, like, was a re- kind of a funny way to wrap up, like, how this, why this all happened. Um, but it did feel, like, maybe a little light in the, like, reasoning. But I feel like you don't always need a serious episode or plot. And as you guys both said earlier, this was just, you know, a little light, a little light reading after you, like, read, like, you know, the history of Japan or something like that. I have no idea where I pulled that out of my ass. Yeah. I was say, what's what? What do you have against the history of Japan? <laughs> no, I'm just saying, like, you know, like re- it's a little fiction before you read like a big nonfiction. Honestly, I usually love the tension-breaking episodes in television shows. Like, even when they're not like the best episode. Like, this is not the best episode of DS9 by a long shot. But it's just it's just nice to see characters interacting in ways that are very low stakes. As opposed to the higher stakes that they're usually dealing with. Yeah. I mean, I feel like the highest stake in general, in like the whole episode, well, besides like, you know, I guess Miles and Keiko, although we, I mean, we know that was like, you know, she's going to go do her beige or stuff. So it's not really something that we would have to deal with next episode anyway, is that Luxana like specifically points out that Odo has feelings for Kira. And this is something that's been building and it was interesting that it took, like, a guest character that's... She, I mean, everyone knows Luxana Troy, but, like, I would say that Odo is probably the person that she talks to the most. So it's interesting. Like, I don't think she would consider herself friends with the rest of them. So it's just interesting to have, like, her friend who doesn't... His friend, sorry, who, like, doesn't see the day-to-day can, like, tell, like, immediately. But she also, like... Even though she can't read his mind, like, she can, she's still smart and knows people's body language and such. Honestly, I have to say I was a little disappointed in how little they used her in this episode, especially because it was such a powerhouse episode. The last time we saw her, that performance in the elevator with Odo, we talked about that a lot in the last episode. But yeah, 
she just it just kind of seems like she's there to be Loxana in the background for the most part. I kind of wanted a storyline that maybe explored like I almost would have liked this episode better if she had been like our POV character. Like if they had explored more what it meant for her to have this fever and like what it meant for her to affect the people around her in this way. Uh, I always thought that TNG doesn't really explore Betazoids very well, considering the fact that they have a Betazoid as like a main character in their show. I just, I think right. the Betazoids are really interesting because they have obviously this whole set of abilities and like a culture that's based on like a race of empathy and telepathy. And I just really think that's a missed opportunity not to like develop that. And so I almost would have liked for this episode to maybe give us more of that through Loxana's point of view instead of having her she's almost just a plot device in this like a very 100%. Like a very visually arresting plot device <laughs> yep yep it's because they had the idea that they wanted to do Midsummer's Night Dream but they don't have fairies to you know and and a setar and a satyr to like muck with the the relationship drama of the human. So it's like, oh, well, what's the next thing as close to the Fae that we have on Star Trek without actually creating an alien Fae like race? Loxana Troy. Yeah, and like I do love, like you said, Elise. I like that as soon as she hears about Odo's relationship or lack thereof, like him finding his people and then immediately sort of losing them again, that she. Yeah like immediately came to support him and i like how at the beginning yeah. she's like i will support you in any way that you want like we can go to the party we can talk we can have fun we can cry like you know like she gives this whole list of like all these things and yeah. at first when i was watching this episode i was like oh this feels like regression it feels like we're going back to the whole like odo doesn't like her and she's just being overbearing and like it's funny because he's being pursued by this older woman and he's just very embarrassed by her and you do get a little of that but after i was thinking about it for a while i think the what's happening in this episode is that odo doesn't actually know how to accept help and he doesn't know how to accept Great. support and so she's like offering him all of this support and all of these like ways of being a friend, but he keeps like pushing her away because he's just interpreting it as her like wanting him sexually, which she does, but like she, right. that's not really why she's there. And so like, I don't think she's acting as that as her first, um, I agree with you. Like, that's yeah. not her first motivation in this episode. Yeah, and so, like, she ends up giving him all the wrong kinds of support because he's not communicating with her about, like, what he actually wants in terms of support. And I just, I really did like, it's not as good as the elevator scene from season one, but I did really like that at the end of this episode, we do get this, like, small bit of vulnerability from her. Which I think, to be honest with you, Odo might be, like, the only person that gets to see this side of her. Like, this, like, I can right. just tell you things about how I feel. <laughs> and I don't have to necessarily dress it up all the time, you know, in all of the, these theatrics that I normally do. And so, you know, we do get this, like, acknowledgement from her that he doesn't feel the same way about her that she does about him. But that it doesn't matter to her. Like, she's there for him anyway. And, you know, I honestly really appreciated that about her, that she was going to, like, 
support him even if he got into his own way. Yeah, I like that. I think it's interesting that the Keiko and Miles storyline and the Odo and Luxana storyline are both about like kind of failed communication and then this the other storyline is like about too much communication maybe. <laughs> well too much communication from her maybe not enough from Odo uh no I mean I mean sorry I meant like the everyone coming oh, on to each other yeah, yeah. it's like yeah too much <laughs> too, too much. much communication there too much I do love that at the end of this, though, she's like, eh, it was a memorable party. What can you do? Like, she's very unconcerned about all the havoc that she's yeah. just caused on this Although, station. I do, I do love her, like, little bit of vanity when she's like, that only happens to old beta <laughs> I was like, I love you. <laughs> and, like, her headdresses, as usual, and her oh, wigs yeah. are just on point. I don't even know how to describe. She great hair. Yeah, great hair. I don't even know how to describe the shapes. Like, you know, I'm trying to remember what it was called, but you know those things that were very popular in the 80s and 90s that you could, like, they were, like, bendable hair products that were covered in fabric. Um, You could, like, put your hair up in a bun with one. Um, I'm trying to remember what they're called. It looked, her headdress looked like those. Um, Hmm. Hold on. We're going to go on a fact-finding tour on... Cool. <laughs> oh, it's not giving me what I want. I'll find it eventually. I just remember the like zigzag headbands. That's all I remember. They were like the relative of the scrunchie, but they were like <laughs> uh, more bendable than a scrunchie. I don't know how to describe them. Mm. If someone listening to this podcast knows what I'm talking about, please let me know. <laughs> I'm on Twitter. Please let me know I'm if very, you understand. I'm very what I'm into. Saying. Sp- it looks like Luxana Troy's headdress right now. Yeah. I'm sure someone will maybe like a know. bump it or something. I don't Not know. really a bump it. The bump it was newer. You wouldn't be able to yeah. see that. But I also enjoyed that she like kisses Odo at the end and totally leaves him wanting more. Like that look on his face at the end when he suddenly realizes what she's been trying to do like all episode and just realizing that she is like this true friend to him. Iconic move. No notes. Love it. How did you feel about Loxana in this episode, Matt? I think it's unfortunate that, like, we showed a different... We continued the different side of her that we had seen kind of in TNG and kind of pulling back the kind of comedy of the character, right? Because, like, I think before we saw her on Deep Space Nine, there was the episode, I think it's called Dark Page in TNG, where you find out spoilers for that episode of Next Generation, but that Deanna wasn't... Um, Luxana and oh, I can't remember her dad. What's I don't Ian. remember. Ian Troy's first um, child. They had a child that had passed away tragically oh, when yes, Deanna yes. was a baby. I remember. So we again we are kind of adding some some pathos to a character that had basically just been the quirky mother in law character that was was chasing chasing men, um, which was the comedy like you know the 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 mother in law being you know hypersexual and and chasing men which again nothing wrong with that we love to see it um and then they kind of continued that again with that the odo pairing in the last episode and then here it's like she's kind of back to like oh she's old and she has menopause and it's making everyone horny because she's horny ha 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 like i don't know i think that was a little not great yeah i will say that There is one moment, and you have to watch for it because it goes by really fast, where she says, why do I fall in love with stubborn men? 
and like just thinking about like the men that she's been in love with like or that she's pursued at least like Jean-Luc like there's a lot of pathos in that statement right like why do I always fall in love with like emotionally unavailable people I mean because there are people like that that they always pursue people who don't love them back and so there is like sort of this tragedy underlaying it but it's played off as comedy so you don't actually get the full layering of her personality in this it does make me think of that episode where she's it's the one with alex um and like where she's supposed to get married to that boring guy and like have this fancy wedding or whatever and it just made me so happy that she and she didn't want to marry him and it just made me so happy that isn't what happened that she like was supposed to i guess betazoids are supposed to get married naked or something i don't know (laughs) and like she did and he was like peace out um it just i think what i'm trying to say is that even though even if they change it in like deep space nine like i i feel like i know who she is and i am gonna hold on to that (laughs) for myself you just reminded me by saying the thing about betazoids and nudity about Quark's conversation with Miles and his whole thing about Ferengi women and nudity, which is really gross mm-hmm. on the surface, although I don't believe him in this episode. I don't think Miles does either because he's like, if you're, you know, if this is so great, why are you still single? I think Quark is very much into alien cultures when it comes to dating, and we've seen that on this yep. on this show before. I think that he's looking for something that's very different from the Ferengi view of relationships. Yeah. And I think what he's saying, he's saying to send up Miles, right? He's saying it to like... Right, for sure. You know, like, oh, like, eh, this is what you should be doing. And of course, that makes Miles angry. And then he goes to make up with Keiko. I think that was his plan the whole time. But I do think there's like this point in there where you're just like, you don't actually want that. Like, you're like, you want like a Klingon or a sexy Romulan or Vulcan. Like, it just, mm-hmm. you don't actually Or someone want... like Dax. Yeah, mm-hmm. like, it, to me, it just feels like he says all of these things, but that's not actually what he wants. Sorry, that's yeah. completely uh, different Ma- from Loxana's no, storyline, but, but I this think it's is, fascinating. No, it's something, it's something that Matt and I have actually discussed quite a bit on this podcast, how Quirk always says he wants, you know, his, like, naked and barefoot I guess if you're naked you are barefoot like wife in his in the kitchen or whatever but like he is we often see him attracted to and I'm not implying trying to imply that um Ferengi women are not are weak in in any way um but like we always see him attracted to these like strong like demanding ladies and it's hot and he knows it Do either of you have anything else to say about the episode before we get into our regularly scheduled segments? No, I think, I think that's it. I think I've thoroughly, thoroughly covered every single thing that I put on my, my notes as I was watching this earlier. (laughs) You you thoroughly menopaused. I thoroughly menopaused all over this episode. (laughs) And now it's time for the Altair Water Thirst Quencher. So Tessa, as the guest, will go you first. So a little little different from how we have it in the notes. But who are you thirsting for so this So normally week? I would say Loxana all the way, but I'm going to have to go actually with Keiko in this episode. Miles is right. The red dress does look very good on her. 
She's so cute with her like little red dress and her red tights. That's the other thing. Everyone's wearing tights in this episode, but I like how they match and she's got her hair down and she looks really relaxed. Maybe she took a nap. Maybe that's what she needed was she was like, go away so I can take a nap. I hope she took like a nice bath also. Yeah. Speaking of tights, I really liked Cisco at the party and what looked like to be like the gray like turtleneck undershirt that they wear under their uniforms, but it was nice and fitted and then he, like the vest, yeah, it has that nineties like bus pattern that like Jake wears a lot of sometimes and like <laughs> yes. whatever. But just the Looks like he cut couch. quite a figure. Yeah, yeah, he cut quite a figure. Arms, that's all I'll say. <laughs> Elise, what about you? Who are you thirsting for this week? So I was pretty much into, I hinted at this earlier, everything that Kira was doing in this episode, she is just so happy for this festival, which she's basically spearheading, which I think is fun. Um, she's wearing that, like, I think she was wearing, like, like a pants bodysuit with that, like, flowy sheer thing over her it looked like it had several layers it was yeah it was and it was gorgeous and like she she had gel in her hair so she like her bangs were down and she had her makeup on and she just looked so happy and light and cheerful and i just found it all very attractive because she's she just was having a wonderful time and that made me very happy it's off duty kira yeah Simply having a wonderful Christmas time. A wonderful Bajoran Gratitude Festival. <laughs> time. Um, that's what I should have said. Um, there we go. I should shout out, and I think we see it another time, but, like, I love Dax's red dress. I think it's not... I think that it's not just in this episode. I recall maybe seeing it. Yeah, anytime you can see Dax's, like, shoulder, um, yeah. the pattern on her shoulders, it's always a good, good episode. There's just a lot of hotties in this episode. Like, everybody looked good. Yeah. Keep feeling fascination. (laughs) Tessa, what would you say is your most Star Trek thing of the episode? So, this is not the first, nor will it be the last, religious ceremony of an alien culture that is never explained to the audience in any way, shape, or form. Which is fine. Like, we don't need (laughs) exposition on everything. But it's just like... It's always viewed through, like, this human lens of, oh, we were invited to somebody's religious festival or whatever. I mean, you could see this in TOS. You could see it in TNG. You could see it in Voyager. Right. Like, it's it's all throughout everything. And I just, I think it's really cool that in DS9 we get to see it integrated into Starfleet as opposed to being, like, a, like, voyeuristic type of view of religion like this actually seemed like oh yeah we have a lot of Bajoran members of course like they're gonna have like their religious holiday on the mm-hmm. on the space station so that was really great but it did very much feel like a nu- like any number of other episodes of Star Trek where they do something similar right I think for me it was the fact that like Miles was just and Keiko at the end were just like not affected um yeah. it kind of because like the whole time like i i never thought they were affected but i wonder if the episode was trying to make us were think that they might have been um and it just kind of reminded me of that the episode i don't remember the name of it but um where miles was presumed dead and keiko was like oh he never drinks coffee in the afternoon on the video and like went to go they went to go like try to rescue him and at the end he was like, I drink coffee in the afternoon all the time. So, like, it, none of it mattered 
or like none of it meant anything. So I kind of felt that way at the end where it was just like, oh, and my headache was just a headache. Like it's not the same thing, but the tone of it felt the same to me. For a second, I thought you were going to say that your most Star Trek thing was makeup sex because they definitely are talking <laughs> about their makeup sex in front of their daughter quite a bit at the end of this episode. <laughs> yeah, that is true. Matt, did you have a most Star Trek thing? Yeah, I think and I think we kind of alluded to it before. It's just, you know, like the naked now, like um, the naked time. <laughs> Or which Naked Time is the TNG one, the like the sequel one or whatever, um, and even the like Naked Time other is the TOS one, and then Naked Now is the TNG one, um, but yeah, Star Trek is always looking for a reason to give its cast like something else to do to like not play their their main characters and like some sort of like alien mumbo jumbo or science mumbo jumbo or whatever yeah. happens, so they get to play like against type or for comedy or drama or whatever like even as recently as a couple months ago on strange new worlds there was the 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 fantasy episode yeah right where there's like the storybook episode so star trek always be doing that that's that's a good call out because they do that in almost every series well tessa thank you so much for joining us again thank you for having me if folks wanted to you're very welcome. And if folks wanted to find more of you on the internet, where could they find they you? They could find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Suela Tessa. Suela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. They could also find me on Monkey Off My Backlog, which is a pop culture productivity podcast. We actually just released an episode a couple weeks ago with Matt on camp. We talked about Barbarella, the adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, and Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again. And I don't know when this episode is going to come out, but in a couple weeks from when we record this, Elise is going to come on to talk about, to assign us some pop culture. So to talk about some of her favorite pop culture, you can find that on Twitter at Monkey Backlog. You can also find me on my other, other podcast, Nanny Ox Book Club, where my friend Nigel and I are reading through all 41 of Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels. You can find that on Twitter at Nanny's, uh, at Nanny's Book Club, and you can find that on Instagram at Nanny Ogg's Book Club. Yeah, and I do think by the time this comes out, the uh, Elisa Science episode probably will yeah, have dropped or will be We're like five Charlie, episodes so. ahead. I can tell you that the camp episode with Matt is very, very good. One of my favorite episodes we've ever recorded. And I am very excited to record with Elise as well. I loved the camp episode. I will co-sign that it was a very fun time. I don't normally like to pump my own tires, but I will say that I had a friend listen to it, having not seen any of the three movies we discussed, and they enjoyed our discussions. So take that as you will, dear listeners. I was going to say that somehow it wasn't me because I also have not seen any of those things and I loved it. Well, there you go. That's two people. <laughs> Elise, in the meantime, where can folks find more of you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Elise underscore Tendi, E-L-Y-S-E underscore T-N-D-I. And you? Yeah, I can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd as well at, at Mattyhugh, M-A-T-T-Y-H-U-G-H. You can catch Elisa and I together on Twitter and Instagram at PodRaiths. You can also email us at PodRaiths at gmail.com. Please rate and review us on the podcatching system of your choice. Thank you to Gigi Empirical for our interstellar theme song. And also thank you to our editor, Melissa. And until next time. 
computer, and program.